you could just uh, bow your heads with me for a moment in prayer. Father, I ask that your spirit would be here among us, at work among us, Lord. I pray that my words would be your words, that they would be a blessing to those who hear them, and that they would be a challenge also to each one of us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, We're going to be looking in some detail at Genesis 22. So if you could turn there, and as you do so, You can pray for me. I have to say, we're going to be talking about the cost of the cross. And as I've been uh, kind of working on this sermon, I found out that that was quite a tongue twister for me. The cost of the cross. So you can pray that I don't stumble over it too many times. The scriptures often refer to Jesus' death on the cross in terms of money. Paul says that we were bought with a price. Peter says that we were redeemed. Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. We use such words, ransom, redeem, price, quite often. But how often do we pause to calculate the price? How often do we ask, what did the cross cost? Tonight we're going to consider the cost of the cross from the viewpoint of a story. I want to want to consider the story of Abraham's testing when God commanded him to sacrifice Isaac. I want to look at the cross through the lens of that story because it gives us some very powerful, yet very down-to-earth ways to measure the cost of the cross. So let's turn back the calendar, way back now, to some 2,000 years before Jesus was crucified. And let's look at Genesis 22 and see what this passage has to teach us about the cost of the cross. And I'm going to read Genesis 22, the first uh, 14 verses. Now it came about that after these things, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. 
For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, that is Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. You know, for many, this is a so-called hard scripture. God asks Abraham to do the unthinkable. How can this be? How can God, who is love, ask such a thing? How could the God whose scriptures proclaim that children are his gift ask Abraham to return his gift in so brutal a manner? The reason for that shocking command, take now your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him as a burnt offering, is that the story recorded here is more than just history. Genesis 22 is prophetic history. Not simply history, but prophetic history. The story points to the cross, and we can only rightly understand it in the light of the cross of Christ. So let's unlock tonight the meaning of this story by using Jesus as the key. Let's look for the story of Jesus, the gospel story, in this story, and discover what it has to teach us about the cost of the cross. But where is Jesus in this story? That question does not have a simple answer. That's because this story speaks in what is known as types. A type is an element in the story that prefigures or foreshadows a future fulfillment. So people, places, and things in this piece of Old Testament history prefigure people, places, and things in the New Testament, elements of the gospel story. What is happening here in Genesis 22 between Abraham, Isaac, and God foretells of greater things to be fulfilled 2,000 years later by Jesus, and even today in our lives. And this story contains more than one type. To understand them, I think it's helpful to imagine that this story is like a jewel, like a diamond that we can pick up and turn around and view from different angles. Just as we can think about repositioning that diamond, that stone, and watching different facets catch the light, so we can imagine turning this story over in our minds and finding different types that communicate different truths. As we tumble this story over in our minds, we can view the story from at least three different perspectives. And from these three perspectives, we find that, it, that we can see Jesus in at least three different places. The ram is Jesus, that's one. The ram is, uh, the, excuse me, Isaac is Jesus, that's two. And the angel of the Lord, who calls to Abraham, is also Jesus. These three types, these three Old Testament images of Jesus, are going to teach us three things about the cross. Number one, when we see the ram as representing Jesus, we understand that the cross cost us nothing. Number two, when we see Isaac as representing Jesus, we understand that the cross cost God more than we can possibly comprehend. And number three, when we see the angel of the Lord as Jesus, we understand that the cross costs us all we have to give. That's a lot, and I'm going to break it down for you. First, we'll start with the ram. When we see the ram as representing Jesus, we gain a humbling perspective on the truth that the cross cost us nothing. First of all, would you all agree that the ram represents Jesus? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? asked Isaac. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, replied Abraham. And sure enough, at just the right time, with Isaac tied up, bound on the altar, and the knife in Abraham's hand, God provides the lamb. 
Is this not the story of Jesus, the gospel story? As Paul puts it in Galatians 4, so also we were held in bondage. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son so that he might redeem us. God sent Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is that substitute sacrifice. As we read in uh, 2 Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So the theology is all there in the story. A substitute sacrifice provided by God while we were in bondage, provided at the right time. The ram is a type of Christ. I also thought it was kind of neat to point out some important circumstantial evidence as well. First, there's the location of this event. The ram was sacrificed on, <clears throat> on a mountain in the land of Moriah. There's one other mention of the name Moriah in Scripture, and that's in Chronicles, when Solomon is choosing a place to build the temple. And though the Genesis account is not specific as to the exact location of the mount, the traditional Jewish understanding is that the temple mount and Abraham's mount are one and the same. And now we know that Jesus was crucified on that mount only a stone's throw away from the temple. So the mount where the ram was sacrificed and the mount where Jesus, the Lamb of God, was crucified are one and the same. There's also the thicket. Abraham finds the ram caught by his horns in the thicket. So the ram was wearing a tangle of branches on his head, a foreshadowing of Jesus' crown of thorns. Now let's unpack how the provision of the ram by God illustrates the cost of the cross, that the cross cost us nothing. Here's Abraham and Isaac climbing the mountain to worship God. What did they bring with them? In verse 6 it says, Abraham took the wood and laid it on Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. They carry only the knife to kill the sacrifice and the wood and the fire to burn it up. In other words, they bring with them only death and destruction. That's us, a picture of us without Christ. Total depravity. Just like Abraham, we don't have the sacrifice either. We don't have what it takes to approach God and worship. We're like that servant in Jesus' parable who owes the king 10,000 talents, a sum far beyond any individual's ability to pay. We can't afford to buy our our way out of the debt that we owe God. We just don't have what it takes. On the other hand, you could say we do have something of value. We have the life that God has given us. Now watch this. If you remember Jesus' parable of the debtor, what did Jesus say? Since Since the debtor did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and his children and all that he had. Okay, so maybe that sounds pretty good. We give ourselves to God and and we call things even, right? But let's think about Abraham and Isaac's situation. Who is Isaac? He's the son of the promise. What was the promise that God made to Abraham? Sarah, your wife, will bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. Now think about it. If Abraham sacrifices Isaac, if God accepts Isaac as a fitting sacrifice, and Isaac gives himself there to God on the mountain, and I mean gives himself to God without God intervening, as he did, and providing an escape, then what is the result? Isaac is dead. A dead Isaac means no more descendants. In other words, no fruitful Adam, uh, Abraham, no everlasting covenant, no promised land. No promised land. Think about that. If God were to exact from us the payment that we owe him, if we were to try, even though it's impossible, to somehow pay the price required, 
That would be the end of us. No everlasting life, no heaven, no promised land. That's the calculus that Isaac faces here. God has called for payment, the price is due, and Isaac has nothing to give but himself. A life that could have been, descendants yet to be, and an everlasting promised future. And if he gives that up, what's he left with? Nothing. It's into this desperate situation that God speaks. Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch your hand out against the lad. And then Abraham raises his eyes, looks, sees behind him the ram. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. Can you put yourself for a second in Isaac's shoes? Here you are tied up and laid on, on the stack of wood atop an altar. Over there, you see uh, smoldering coals set aside in preparation for lighting you on fire. Your only comfort is the thought that you'll be dead at your father's hand before the burning begins. Everything seems to be moving in slow motion as your father quietly reaches out, takes up the knife. It's over. Your fate is sealed. Then suddenly, the word of God breaks the silence. Next thing you know, you're off the altar. Your father's untying you and running over to that thicket to bind up a ram that seems to have suddenly appeared out of nowhere. Now the smoke is rising from the altar, and you're not on it. The ram is burning in your place. And it slowly sinks in. God has provided a substitute. You're alive. You're free. And what did you do to earn that freedom? What did you give to ransom your life? Nothing. It cost you absolutely nothing. The ram paid it all. The ram, sent by God, took your place, and now you're free. Have you ever felt such relief? The blade was about to fall, the end was coming, and suddenly the threat is gone. The weight is lifted, the storm is blown over. Have you ever felt such joy? It's like a second lease on life. It's as if you were dead, and now you're alive. Have you ever been so thankful to God? He has removed the curse from over your head. You were helpless, you were in his power, under his condemnation. But he's miraculously provided a way to commute that sentence of death. He's provided what you could not afford to pay. And it cost you absolutely nothing. You know, Isaac's name means he laughs. He was so named by God as a reminder that both Abraham and Sarah laughed at God's promise of a son because they thought they were too old to conceive. When Isaac was born, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. As Abraham untied him and let him down from that altar, as the fear and the doom were dispelled, wasn't there now a new reason to laugh? To laugh with a laugh of joy and a shout of thanksgiving? Is this not exactly where our hearts should be tonight? Shouldn't we all be laughing with Isaac? We were dead in our trespasses and sin, in which we formerly walked according to the pattern of this world. We were by nature children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. He sent Jesus, the Lamb of God, to be pierced through for our transgressions, as we read this evening, crushed for our iniquities, punished in our place. So when we see the ram as a type of Jesus, we get a real down-to-earth view of our freedom from sin and from death and the great provision of God. The cross cost us nothing. God provided. He is Jehovah-Jireh. Now let's pause for a second, and we're going to consider the second type of Christ that we find in this story. The second type of Christ is Isaac. As we consider Isaac, we'll see that the cross cost God 
more than we can possibly imagine. Now, I know this might be a little disorienting. We just got through thinking of what it would be like for us to be in Isaac's shoes. We were identifying with Isaac. Now we're turning the tables, and we're identifying Jesus with Isaac. As I said, we need to hold this story up like a jewel, turn it around, and and look at it from different angles. From this second angle, it's very clear that Isaac is a type of Christ. We pick up on this right from the start of the story. Did you notice what God calls Isaac in verse 2 of chapter 22? God says, take now your son, your only son. But Isaac is not Abraham's only son. About 14 years before Isaac was born, Abraham fathered Ishmael. So why does God call Isaac Abraham's only son? At the time, Abraham would have understood this as God referring to the fact that Isaac was the son of the promise. There's only one son of the promise, and God made it very clear that it is Isaac that is the son of the promise, not Ishmael. But there's a better, more profound understanding. What God is doing here is pointing to something Jesus would say 2,000 years later. Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is the ultimate reason why God calls Isaac Abraham's only son, to point us to Jesus, God's only son, and to indicate that Isaac is a foreshadowing of Jesus. But there are many, many other ways in which Isaac foreshadows Jesus. I don't know if this is a complete list, but buckle your seatbelts. Isaac was the long-awaited son whose advent was promised by God. Jesus was the long-awaited son whose advent was promised by God. Isaac was miraculously conceived by a miracle. Jesus was miraculously conceived by a miracle. Isaac was the one through whom God promised to bless all the families of the earth. Jesus is the one through whom God blesses people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. As Isaac climbed up Mount Moriah, he bore upon his back the wood on which he was to be sacrificed. 2,000 years later, Jesus climbed a hill not far from that very same spot. And did he not bear upon his back the wood on which he would be sacrificed? There's also a direct connection between the sacrifice of Isaac and the death and resurrection of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews points this out for us in Hebrews 11. He writes that Abraham received Isaac back from the dead as a type. Now hold on a minute. I thought Isaac didn't die. How could Abraham have received him back from the dead? It's because for Abraham, insofar as he was concerned, Isaac was as good as dead from the moment God commanded the sacrifice. So when God relented and stayed Abraham's hand, it was to Abraham as if Isaac were resurrected. And did you notice there in verse 4 that Abraham found the mountain on the third day? That parallels Jesus' resurrection on the third day. Both Isaac and Jesus were transferred from death back to life on the third day. When we consider all the parallels between Abraham's sacrifice and Isaac and God the Father's sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus, this difficult, shocking, even disturbing story begins to make some profound sense. Why did God command Abraham to commit this terrible act? It's because he wanted us to understand. He wanted us to understand what he would do 2,000 years later on Golgotha. He wanted us to understand the price that would be paid, the ransom that was required to free us from sin and from death. The power of this story is is that it brings the theology of Jesus' sacrifice down to a human level. It's a human level we can understand, a level that hits us not only in our heads, but also in our hearts and, and in our guts. 
That's because the story revolves around the father-son relationship. What did the cross cost God? God gives us this story as a starting point for calculating that cost. To make our calculations, we need to consider the value of Isaac to Abraham. And the value of Isaac to Abraham starts with that most fundamental love that a parent has for a child. You know, I've heard it said that having a child is like having your heart go walking around outside your body. Isaac was Abraham's loved son. Isaac was Abraham's heart walking around outside his body. This is something every parent, I think, can identify with. That flesh of one's flesh, bone of one's bone relationship. A child is part of, is one with their parent. And that goes beyond biology, as adoptive parents will tell you. There are deep, heartfelt ties that bind parent and child. But Abraham had more reason to value Isaac. Isaac was the culmination of Abraham's past relationship with God. He was the fulfillment of God's promise. Abraham had waited decades for Isaac's arrival. Finally, Isaac was born and there was laughter. Isaac was Abraham's source of joy. Most of us know couples who have had to wait years for children. There's at least one in our church. And how precious is that baby that was hoped for for so long? But Abraham had even more reason to value Isaac. Isaac was Abraham's future. It was through Isaac that God would fulfill his covenant to give Abraham the land of promise. It was through Isaac that God would create nations as numerous as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. No matter where you look in Abraham's life, past, present, future, Isaac was there. Abraham had nothing that he valued more than Isaac, nothing that he loved more than Isaac. How much more true is this of God's father, God the Father's relationship with his son? Think about it. Where Isaac was to Abraham a, pr- a promise stretching back decades, Jesus is the son to his father for all time, stretching back across eons into eternity past. Where Isaac was a part of Abraham, Jesus is truly one with his father, co-equal, co-existent, one in substance. And where Isaac was the one through which Abraham's descendants would become as the sand on the seashore and as the stars of the heavens. Jesus was the one through which God actually created the sands on the seashores and all the stars of the heavens. Are we beginning to see how precious the son is to the father? That father-son relationship gives us just a start on calculating the value of Jesus to the father. But at the same time, we recognize that value goes far beyond our ability to calculate, beyond our ability to imagine, because it is is amplified to the infinite, because we are dealing with the everlasting, infinite God. Now, take that value of the Son to the Father, be it at the human level where we can wrap our minds around it, or at that amplified level that we can only just barely begin to comprehend. Take that Son of tremendous value, And imagine the unimaginable. Put him on the altar and kill him. You see, though we can point to all those parallels between Isaac and Jesus, there's one obvious difference. Isaac did not die there on the altar. But Jesus did. To understand what happened on Golgotha, we have to imagine the unimaginable. Namely, we have to imagine that Abraham went through with the sacrifice, that he actually brought that knife down on his son's flesh, that he watched the life drain out of his eyes, that he set the altar afire and committed his son's body 
to be consumed by the flames. It's horrible even to contemplate. I mean, it, it repulses us. It shocks us. But you know what? This is what God did. God the Father gave his one and only Son, the one with whom he shared eternity past, the one through whom he created the universe, the one in whom all his promises were to be fulfilled. This Son he sacrificed. This Son he gave to drink of the full cup of his wrath. This Son he crushed, putting him to grief. This Son he rendered as a guilt offering there on Mount Moriah. And blood was spilled, and the fire of God's wrath burned, and Jesus was consumed there upon the wood as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If the thought of Abraham slaying his son shocks us, how much more the thought of God's righteous wrath being poured out on his precious, priceless son. Is it any wonder that the sun went dark, that the earth shook? What did the cross cost God? More than we can possibly imagine. Today and every day, we should pause to let that truth sink in. So the ram reminds us that the cross cost us nothing. Isaac reminds us that the cross cost God more than we can possibly imagine. And the final type of Jesus is Jesus himself. Okay, so now I said something confusing. How can Jesus be a type of himself? What I mean by this is, is that what Jesus says to Abraham here in Genesis 22 is a foreshadowing of what he will say 2,000 years later to his disciples and what he says another 2,000 years later to us today. Okay, so I said it again. I said something else confusing. Did I just say that Jesus spoke to Abraham? Did you catch that? But he does. In verse 11, we read, The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. This is Jesus speaking to Abraham. Why do I say that? Well, if you follow the conversation, this is what you'll find. The same one who is called the angel of the Lord says, Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son from me. This angel, which means messenger, refers to himself as God in the first person. Now, who do you know who is at the same time both God's messenger, that is God's word, and God himself? There's only one, one person, and that's Jesus. Jesus here is the angel of the Lord. Now, what is it that Jesus says that foreshadows what he will later say when he comes to earth in the flesh? It comes here in two parts in Genesis 22. The first part is the verse I just read, verse 12, where it says, Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The second part is the end of the story in verses 15 through 18, which I didn't read yet. I'm going to read now. There it says, The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you obeyed my voice. Now I know that you fear God, says the angel of the Lord, and because you have not withheld your son, because, you're, because you fear God above all else, I will greatly bless you. 
Well, I think we finally come to perhaps the plainest meaning of the story, and that is that God tested Abraham. All right, it says so right in the first verse, God tested Abraham. And the test is this. What has first place in your heart, Abraham? Fear of God, reverence of God, or love of your son? Didn't Jesus say the same thing to his disciples? Doesn't he say the same thing to us today? Does he not call us to withhold nothing from him? Did not Jesus say to his disciples, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Again, to his disciples, he said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are strong words, words that should wake us up to what it costs to come to the cross of Christ and to claim Jesus as our Savior. Lay your Isaac on the altar, says the angel of the Lord in Genesis 22. Calculate the cost, says Jesus in Luke 14. What does the cross cost us? We are to withhold nothing. It costs us everything that we hold dear. Now, it's not that we're literally called to hate our family or give away everything. There's no support for that in Scripture. We are not called to wander destitute and to be a drain on society. Jesus himself with his disciples saved money. They they used their money to provide for their needs and to give to the poor. Paul worked for a living. Paul instructed us to provide for our own households. And we are instructed over and over again to love our wives and husbands and children and neighbors. But we are called as Abraham to love God above all else so that nothing comes even close to his first place in our hearts and minds. We are called to count everything as loss in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. We are called to be crucified with Christ such that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. We are called to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. As we hear the voice of Jesus in the voice of the angel of the Lord in Genesis 22, we see that the blessings of the promise come to those who leave all on the altar. The cross costs us everything. Now this is a paradox. We know that that salvation is a free gift of God's grace. We know that Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider, provided the lamb, his son. We know we did absolutely nothing to contribute to this sacrifice. We know that the cross cost us nothing. Now we're saying that the cross costs us everything. As we look back over what we've learned from the types in Genesis 22, I think we can understand this paradox. See, the ram shows us that we are saved because God provided. Isaac shows us that this provision costs God more than we can possibly comprehend. And our right response, out of joy, out of love, out of thanksgiving, out of an understanding of the priceless value of God's sacrifice, and out of an overflowing holy fear, reverence, and worship, is to give God all we have, to give all we have to Christ. This is what we sing when we uh, sang that wonderful hymn at the beginning of the service, when I survey the wonderful cross. We sing, Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands what? 
demands my soul, my life, my all. The cross costs us everything. So where are you tonight? Have you recognized Jesus as the ram that God provided? Are you living in that freedom with a sense of relief and joy and thanksgiving as one whose debts, which were beyond measure, have been paid by the Lord our provider, Jehovah Jireh? Are you laughing along with Abraham and Sarah? Do you worship the Lord in that spirit of joy and thanksgiving? Have you recognized that the cross cost you nothing? And does the joy of that fact spill over into every corner of your life? And have you recognized Jesus as Isaac, the loved, precious, only, priceless son of the Father who was one with him, the one through, through whom all the sands of the, of the seashore and all the stars of the sky were made? Have you recognized that it was this pre- precious, priceless son that was sacrificed on your behalf, that your debt might be paid, that your sins might be forgiven, that you might have eternal life? Have you recognized that the cross cost God more than you can possibly fathom? Do you wake up every morning in the knowledge that this is the value that God has placed on you, that he would sacrifice his only son to save you? Do you spend your days in complete astonishment over the cosmic proportions of that price? And do you go to bed at night with praise on your lips for this shocking thing that the Lord has done? And have you responded to these truths by placing your all on the altar? Do you recognize tonight that because you were bought with a price, the cross costs you everything? Have you withheld anything from him? Does God have first place in your heart and mind? Do you work your job in service to him? Or are you working for money or for praise or for, uh, <clears throat> for a comfortable retirement? Parents, do you serve your children out of love for God? Or are you serving in drudgery out of a sense of duty? Or are you idolizing your children? and living vicariously through them. Husbands and wives, do you love with that self-sacrificial love that comes from having sacrificed yourself first to God? And children, do you obey your parents because you have to or because you love God? Do we all love one another with the love of Christ who loved us and gave himself up for us? Do we worship God's blessings or do we truly revere God and himself above all else? Let's pray. Lord, may we leave here tonight in all reverence for you. May our hearts be filled with great joy, for you are Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. May our minds be staggered by the price that you paid for us, for you gave your one and only Son to die that we might live. And may you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, enable us to give you all to pick up our cross, and to follow Jesus, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.